our society has done an excellent job of conditioning people to think that healthy eating is about fruits and vegetables and about weighing less or being thin. Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. A skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, welcome back to the Seasoned RD podcast, or welcome to the Seasoned RD podcast if this is your first time. I am Beth Harrell, your host, and we had an exciting opportunity to shift a little bit from treatment to prevention, and this episode is the second episode of five on our prevention series. It is with Sumner Brooks, a registered dietitian and co-author of Intuitive Eating for Kids, Raising Kids with Food and Body Confidence. Like, wow. So we had a great conversation. Sumner has been a guest on the podcast before, but this one is a little different because we are asking her to speak in terms of prevention and how can we as parents, as teachers, as coaches, really bring to light that kids can be struggling how to create an environment with the best possible outcome so that kids do have food and body confidence. So please enjoy this episode with Sumner Brooks. Welcome Sumner Brooks to the Seasoned RD podcast on the prevention series. We're so happy you're here. Thank you, Beth. I love so much what you all do with this podcast. So I am so happy to be back. Well, we're so excited to chat with you today. Before you got on, Beth and I were getting our Raisin Intuitive Eater books out and ready to go. We're such huge fans of you, and I'm going to ease you into the conversation with some fun icebreakers. So my first one for you is sweet or salty? Oh my gosh. I'm just completely even balanced on the two. Honestly, it does not feel right to pick one way or the other. (laughs) Together or separate? Ooh, separate separate. I'm either like all the way, give me my gumdrops or I just really want like cheesy popcorn. Let's see. I love them together. So <laughs> all the different ways we can love our food. All right. I've got another one for you. Is it sunrise or sunset for you? Sunrise. Get me up before the sun and put me outside with the sunrise for sure. As a lady from Oregon. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, really, it's just my favorite time of day. I've always been a morning person and it takes a lot of sleep loss for me to sleep in and miss the morning. Mm, that's nice. Yeah. All right. And favorite food memory as a child. 
I'm remembering, I think you asked me this last time. No idea. I think I said my mom's chocolate cake, maybe. Favorite food memory? You know, I just think about, I'd have to say at my grandmother's house in Charlotte, North Carolina, we would go there every summer. I was raised in, in Oregon. So it was a big deal for us to go out to North Carolina in the summer and she would make her amazing yeast rolls and we'd watch her make them and anticipate them. And they're just so good and so yummy. And now I make them for the holidays. Oh, I want that recipe. <laughs> I just it's so had, easy. <laughs> is it so easy? Okay, I want I want it even more. I had a chance, an opportunity recently to try out a new oven and I just decided to make English muffin toasting bread with yeast and 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 it just smells so good when it's cooking. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it can be very intimidating to think about playing with those little live yeast guys, but it works. Yeah. Make it work. If you ha- make sure you it's not expired and yeah. and you can make it work. Not <laughs> too hard. Told- Pun- Do you get to punch it? That's the best part. In this recipe, you need it 10 times. That's it. But I told my son when we were making them for Thanksgiving, I was like, so these are our little live organisms. And he's like, they're alive. I'm like, they're like little bugs and they're going to grow. And then we're going to put them in the bread. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to, yeah, give you oxygen for the bread. Yeah. A little too advanced for him. And Dr. Voss, do you have some to punch it? Do you have some something to get out? Like always, always. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, this Sumner, we are so grateful for your book, Raise an Intuitive, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater, Raising the Next Generation with Food and Body Confidence. And you are our second guest in our prevention series. And we're going to have five guests throughout this prevention series. And we're so excited to hear some of your ideas about how we as professionals can guide, like put ourselves out of a job, Mm -hmm. out of an eating disorders job. So I'm going to punt it back to you. And I know that's a really broad question. So I say there's, if the question is, you know, can we, or how do we prevent eating disorders? And I'll kind of preface that from prevention in terms of for young people, kids, teens, large percentage of disordered eating and eating disorders starts in early life years. So I think there's good news and bad news with the possible responses to this question. I think the bad news is, and we have to be really upfront, is that we don't have control over this. We don't have full control, right? There are too many factors at play when it comes to why someone develops an eating disorder for us to be able to say, how do we prevent this? I don't know that we can prevent 100% of eating disorders, but the good news is We do know that there are a lot of areas where we can do much better, where we can do more. We can be in front of the risk factors. We can, I think, do a lot with focusing on prevention that can make a huge difference. So I'm excited to talk about those things, but I also think it's important for people to be informed of that, right? There's the biopsychosocial factors not all of them are within one's control. 
I love that. And in the medical field, we're always talking about the two hit theory, which is you have the genetic component and then you have the environmental component and we can't change our genetics. That is what it is. But there are things we can influence in the environmental side. And those are the ones that I think are really important to focus on because they, they're something that is tangible and, and at least as far as the near future goes, the only part that we can change. So Within your book, you have the title, How to Raise an Intuitive Eater. So I was wondering, keeping those environmental factors that are changeable in mind, could you describe even what it is that you mean by intuitive eating and why that would be important for a family to know about? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a great place to start. Intuitive eating is the term that can be really misunderstood and oversimplified even. By oversimplified, sometimes you will hear someone describe intuitive eating as just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full, as if it should be just that easy. And our food world, our relationship with food is actually quite complex. So I really encourage people not to distill intuitive eating down to just eat when you're hungry and stop when you're full. But the simpler way I do start to talk about intuitive eating with people is imagine how humans are designed to eat and how we evolved to eat if we never had any diets, if we didn't have food labels, if we didn't have a fear of weight gain, and if we didn't have all of these generational sort of rules and beliefs passed down about good foods and bad foods. So if we wipe all of that away and we just look at how we are biologically designed to eat, to survive and to grow and thrive, that's how I would describe intuitive eating. That sounds really complex. Like that's even hard for me. I love it. I love the concept, but it's even hard for me as someone in the field to grasp all the components that go into that. And so I'm just wondering, the second part of that question is like, how do we start to introduce that to the families, this concept and and having them grasp it as something that's attainable? How do we start? That is a place that so many of us sort of get caught up on, right? Because there are so many different ways to talk about this. We can talk about this from a, you know, societal appearance and beauty standards place, right? Let's change these standards. Let's change the white, thin, cis way of looking at bodies that says that's a good body. Another way of looking at this is where did all these diet rules come from? And are they really true? And do they really help promote health? So really kind of looking at the science and looking at weight science where we know that dieting and rigid eating actually leads to less likely a person having positive health outcomes. We can look at it from a psychological and relational perspective where what happens to a person when they don't have a positive or secure feeding relationship with their primary caregiver or What happens for a person when they experience trauma and their subconscious is now looking for ways to cope 
and maintain life within the context of this trauma. So eating disorders are spread all throughout all of these different areas. And so back to where we started with how do we talk about intuitive eating? I think it's so important for every single time this conversation comes up is to slow it down, to really tune into what matters for the person across from me. What do I know so far about which of these things might be important for them and for us to talk about here? Let's say, for example, as a dietitian in a room with a concerned parent, I think we do need to tap into what information do I have and like what can set the foundation for me here to move into this conversation in a way that's going to something's going to click with this person or this parent. That's one way. And the creators of intuitive eating, Elise Resch and Evelyn Triboli, they do a really good job of breaking down intuitive eating into digestible pieces. So for example, part of it is tuning into the body, but part of it is self-compassion and kindness. And part of it is practicing letting go of the food rules. You know, you said this feels really overwhelming. How do we even go there? And I think the reality is it is overwhelming. This is huge. And we don't change and learn and change our mind about dieting overnight. And so starting from a place of I know this might sound sound hard to believe, or I totally understand this can be overwhelming. Let's take it slow. Or what are your biggest questions as we begin to talk about this? Those might be some ways. Yeah. When we before we hit record, we were talking about how parents are confused and scared sometimes. They how do we, you know, they 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 feel like they need to focus on nutrition and they use the words healthy eating. And so do medical providers and and therapists and dietitians. And and I think that's part of the slowing it down and tuning into the person across is finding out any of those things. Do you have an example of something that parents might be struggling with or how professionals, because what you're kind of, if I understand right, you're talking about trauma-informed nutrition care. Mm Mm-hmm. And social determinants of health, right? All of the multiple factors that go into what is in front of your plate and or in front of you on your plate at that moment. Mm -hmm. The flexibility and the nuance is, is so important in thinking about how a person might define healthy eating. I think asking a lot of questions is a good place to start. You know, oh, so you're saying that you're you're worried that your child doesn't eat many vegetables and so that's bringing you to the conclusion that your child isn't eating healthy or doesn't have a healthy diet. Let's explore that a little more. What about other food groups? How do you describe whether or not you're able to know if your child is healthy or not? things like that, because health is seen so differently by different people, different cultures, different age groups, even different socioeconomic status and geographical status, right? So I think not working off the assumption that their definition of health and let's say my definition of health are even the same things. Do you ever try to like change their definition of health or do you ever try to change the wording they use? Or do you think that that's not 
shouldn't be a focus and it should be more about just focusing on behaviors and still letting them use whatever language makes most sense to them? You know, personally, I don't think it's the language and the labels so much that matters. Sometimes we see that the more you push back against someone, maybe the more they're going to retreat and the less likely they will be to hear you or to really be open to change. So I think about it as what can I add on? You know, what information can I bring to this person to help them maybe see the situation differently or help them, you know, have new information to use when they're making decisions? And we we have to remember that that small little nuggets, right? We're not going to make huge strides likely with one or two conversations. You know, I would feel really I'd feel really proud, right? If I could get one piece of new information to someone and have them maybe have one little light bulb moment. So that might sound like, well, I hear you that, you know, you're really concerned about your child's vegetable intake. Tell me a little bit about what you see happening over time. The more that you do what you've described as forcing them to eat it, what do you notice? And so that even on its own, can put them into a place of a little bit of reflection, a little bit of gathering some information that's that's true for them versus me telling them to believe something. And Dr. Voss, to your point earlier of health or healthy can mean different to so many different people. Sumner, do you think that's maybe okay that families can have their own individual meaning of what healthy might look like for them? I think sometimes in our diety world, we can be in one extreme or the other. And what is the harm of someone just having their own kind of middle ground? And it's completely different than maybe what the next families is, of course, with some guidance there could be very helpful, but maybe healthy does look different for everyone. And that's okay. Abby, I think that is such an important point. None of us has a way to measure necessarily or define what health even is. And I think that is because it's different for everyone. I I think empowering and using, you know, positive reinforcement is really, really important for these changes, right? So assuring them that this is important to you and I can see why and, and what else. So, and what are the concerns, you know, around this issue with vegetables? How can I help you answer some of your questions, but also how can we work on you feeling assured that not eating this vegetables is not an all or nothing going to result in your child being healthy or not? So Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And then I also think we need to really be supportive of people who are struggling with these questions. They're coming from a place of fear, usually, and insecurity, and very likely an adult's historical experiences with food. You know, adults get scared and worried about health and food because of experiences they've had. And if we can keep that in mind, that we're also there to help them as an individual, not just their child, because those things are not, they're not, we can't separate them. We are going to take a quick break to talk about the inspiration for this prevention series. 
This podcast is for professionals who work with eating disorders, and many of us say that we wish we could be out of a job. If we could prevent eating disorders, that would be way more fun than the work we do today in trying to help save lives and and help people pick up the pieces of some of this devastation. So this is sponsored by... Children's Mercy Eating Disorders Program in Kansas City, although Children's Mercy Eating Disorders Center treats children and teens with eating disorders along with their families, they saw this podcast as a way to spread important information about prevention. Like I said, about finding a different career if eating disorders vanished. They were able to sponsor five episodes due to a generous donation from a couple whose granddaughter was treated for an eating disorder at Children's Mercy and who are particularly passionate about prevention to save other teens and families the pain their own family has experienced. Thank you so much to the anonymous donors and thank you to Children's Mercy for bringing this series to us as professionals. I really loved something that you said, Sumner, about as dietitians, we tend to want to check the boxes and, and, and prove that we're we're doing something, you know, that we're, and sometimes it's so slow when you said you can be really proud if there's just one little bit of movement. And when, when I'm doing supervision with, with dietitians, sometimes they feel like they're not helping. And, and I can point out, <laughs> look what you just said, look what you just did, look what just happened within your office. And it may feel really mustard seed tiny. And it sounds like they didn't, you know, their body language did not reject that. It actually allowed them to be inviting that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Small steps forward are definitely, that's how I talk about it a lot is I would rather take multiple small steps forward and then look back and say, wow, look how far we've come, then take some big steps forward, big steps back, and then just feel really stuck in the middle. So Mm -hmm. I love that. I am hoping to kind of turn this conversation on its head a little bit. And so we've talked a lot about how the, the family member who comes in and says, hey, my kid's not eating healthy. I need them to eat more vegetables. What about the scenario when it's the opposite, when there is might be a medical provider or a therapist is worried about an eating disorder, more of a restrictive one, and the parent comes in and they're like, but my daughter just wanted to be healthy or my son just wants to improve in his sport. And so you're telling me as a nutritionist that eating all these fruits and vegetables is not healthy. I That makes no sense to me. How would you approach it from an intuitive eating perspective in that situation? Yeah, so all kind of light bulbs go off in that moment, right? Where you can see, okay, healthy to this person is really tied up in the generalization of fruits and vegetables equals healthy eating. So pretty quickly, we can see there's so much area of opportunity here. And I think using really simple examples, like if what we're seeing is that your child is not eating enough calories, even though they're eating lots of fruits and vegetables, we're seeing a negative impact on their health. When we don't have enough calories, we're not going to see healthy hormone production or adequate growth. We might see loss of muscle, we might have increased risk of injury or decreased immunity, right? So you can start to broaden their view of all of these different ways 
and things that can, can contribute to a person's health and tie it more to eating enough. Our society has done an excellent job of conditioning people to think that healthy eating is about fruits and vegetables and about weighing less or being thin. And so that is of no fault at all of any parent walking in the room who has only the best of intentions to support their child's health. And they have just been an excellent student in what our diet culture has taught them. They have listened and they have gotten an A plus on their healthy eating report. And they want you to tell them, or they, they're looking for you to say, you know, what are they missing? They have just done everything they can and they still don't understand why there's this unhealthy, maybe food pattern coming up for their child. And we get to then help them see, here's where diet culture has missed the mark for you, that you haven't really been told everything. And I'm going to really work with you so that you can feel confident and understand truly what it means to eat adequately and be nourished. And we're going to work with that from this stance of making sure that your child is getting enough to eat. And what are your thoughts on social media in terms of prevention? Because it seems like you could take a set of parents and teach them everything that you know, and they could show their children that perfectly. But if their child is on the quote unquote wrong side of social media, that it could possibly undo all of the work that the parents have educated their children on. So what what do you do in those scenarios? Whew. You're bringing up all kinds of stuff for me right now because my children are six and nine and a half. And so we don't, they don't have phones yet. They don't have social media accounts. And I have a lot of anxiety and worry around what's going to happen to them when they cross over into this other part of our world, knowing as much as I know about how awful some of this messaging is. As I talk to my friends who have kids in middle school and high school, it has become very clear to me, you're not going to keep them from seeing any of it. You're just not. There's no way. So I lean on and I talk to parents about this is another reason why from day one, if we can, or from wherever we are right now, understanding the power of having an open relationship and talking about bodies, talking about self-appreciation and talking about mental health. And also from as early as we are able to modeling, which I know is kind of a term that's thrown out there a lot, but, but modeling permission to eat, modeling non-judgment of bodies and non-judgment of food, really challenging the stuff that comes up very young for kids as early as preschool about food rules, good and bad food. And right, that preschool age is where all of this nonsense really starts with that health is about broccoli and orange slices and not orange juice. We don't drink orange juice. We eat orange slices. Because it's a sugary beverage. Totally. So, you know, our very young children are being impacted by diet culture messaging from way before they have access to social media. So 
the prevention piece also needs to begin as early as possible. We challenge fat phobia. We talk about body diversity. We, we can be super intentional about the harms of dieting and why restriction is not something we need to be doing, answering questions, being really open with conversations around food and body, normalizing all different kinds of body things, right? Like, you know, cellulite, you go watch a movie and a child is going to learn that cellulite is not something they should have on their body. So every single day, there's an opportunity for us to kind of build up some of this resilience so that hopefully by the time they do get on social media, they at least have, you know, a foundation for them to challenge some of what they're seeing. Are you talking about a movie that's out right now? For example, on the uh-huh. side, mm-hmm. uh-huh. yeah. I, I, that yeah. was one part that bothered the heck out of me. Okay. I love your pr- modeling permission to eat, modeling, no judgment about bodies, about their own, the parent body, about people walking down the street bodies, about the child's body. We know kids tend to grow out before they grow up, you know, sometimes with di- as dietitians, parents will tell us they're getting a tummy. And that's normal, like when you said normalize body parts or body things, that is normal, right, Dr. Ross? It totally is. And I'm laughing a little bit because when you said normalize body things, I immediately went to, yes, it's normal to poop and fart and burp. Yeah, (laughs) totally. Because that's what I talk about so much. (laughs) Well, and that totally is part of it too. That's part of the shame piece, right? Is that feeling full is shameful sometimes. Yeah. Girls especially mm -hmm. learn that it's not okay to have a normal human body. You have to be totally perfect. You have to look perfect. Your body has to sound perfect and it definitely can't have normal bodily function. (laughs) Right. And so I do a lot of education about like what fullness is and that it's normal versus pathological. So, so many kids come in and say, well, I'm so bloated after I eat. And I'm like, no, that's called satiety, you know, and just having them accept the feelings that your body has when it feels full and when it feels hungry and recognizing those and connecting it with your mental health, like you've talked about is so important and also so hard. Mm -hmm. I was thinking back to something that you said that really really connected with me, which was when talking with families who might have a lot of education from various out various outlets on what health is and and the concept of dieting and maybe they've done a lot of dieting themselves or they have a lot of food rules. I love how you said one that you appreciated and recognized how much knowledge they have and two, making them realize that their knowledge isn't complete. And so that your one of your jobs is to help them increase and expand their knowledge so they have all of the information to make good choices. I love that approach because it really empowers them and you're meeting them where they're at with what they feel is important. And I just will remember, we talked a little bit before about Shauna Goldman, who is a, a nutritionist that I was seeing for a while. And I walked into her office and she had like a bowl of just like the little candy bars, you know, the little variety type, whatever. And I was like, what's that doing there? And she's like, you can have one of those. And I said, 
I can? What? And she said, of course you can have one. And I was like, I'm allowed to eat a candy bar? And she said, yes. In a nutritionist's office? What? Yes. And it totally like blew my mind. And this was, you know, I'm an adult. And this concept of allowing yourself to eat the variety of foods was so new to me and opened my world up to such a huge, like, new concept. And so, again, going back to those little things, right? And so I'm wondering if you've got any suggestions or practical tips on things that non-eating disorder focused providers, if it's nutritionists, therapists, medical, or even just family members, the things that they can do that will model some of those concepts that are quick and easy and feasible. Yeah. So as I'm listening to you, I'm having all kinds of memories come up of every single time I've been in the room with a parent who has a child with an eating disorder and them for the very first time, they're listening to me suggesting adding butter or switching to whole milk or bringing in some white bread into the the family meals and just the looks on their faces of, are you seriously suggesting that we eat this way? You know, so these are totally normal reactions that people who are very right, quote, educated around nutrition, I guess I'd summarize this by saying, people need permission. That's how, that's how strict our kind of food culture has become, that people are seeking permission from, let's say, a dietitian or a nutrition professional or a doctor, that they are allowed to eat all of these different things that are not fruits, vegetables, low fat, sugar free, all of these things. And then they're relieved. So there's this big sense of relief that you see, you know, maybe how you felt when Shauna told you you could have one of those candy bars. It's really like a different language. Whenever we're starting with someone new, we have to remember I'm teaching them a new language and it's going to be slow and that's okay. So you asked about tips or things that we can do. I think one of the things is when somebody is sharing with you, you know, oh, my my child eats a whole box of macaroni and cheese, or, you know, they wanted four cookies for dessert, is, is how we react to that. Like, if we reinforce oh, four cookies, you know, then it's like, we're saying, you're right, that's a problem. Or if we or if we say a whole box of macaroni and cheese, then it's like, it, so it's these little things that we do that either challenge the belief or reinforce the belief. And I I know for me, it's almost every time I'm meeting with someone, but maybe for another health provider, they can they can start to see these opportunities where we can say, huh, okay. And you know, like we're not, and tell me what the concern is, right? So that we don't reinforce all of these food rules. I think suggesting making sure people are satisfied. So making sure a child is is satisfied by having enough dessert or, or dessert more often, right? And really normalizing part of why we eat food is because it tastes good. There's nothing wrong with that, you know? So a question could be, 
do you think you're, you know, the foods that you're, let's say, serving for a certain meal, is that fully satisfying? Is that everything you would want it to be? Do you feel like everyone has permission to have as many pieces of bread as they want? Or so we're really kind of planting little seeds about very basic food behaviors that lead to what you brought up earlier, which is satiety. So all of this is around like permission and satiety, which are things that have been stripped away from, from us by diet culture. Mm -hmm. And conditioned by society, as you mentioned before, permission is huge. And I always feel like when you talked about shame, shame can be the, the, impetus for an eating disorder or for disordered eating, the driver. Thank you. And that relationship can be what heals the attachment, the ability to find safety within food and eating and body. So besides getting how to raise an intuitive eater book, how can people connect with you more Sumner? Oh, do we have to finish this already? I know. (laughs) We, I've had a great time. A Thank you. Okay. <laughs> I am, I am not super active on social media, but you know what? I am going to see if I can turn that around gradually. I'm really excited to announce that I'm going to be starting a new podcast with Shauna Goldman, who was mentioned earlier in our conversation. And we're going to be having short episodes that are just all about answering questions good old-fashioned everyday food feeding body eating disorder questions from parents and caregivers so stay tuned for more information on that i am on instagram at intuitive eating rd and for professionals and dietitians i run edrd pro which is an online training platform for dietitians around eating disorder treatment and If you want to reach out to me, you can DM me through Instagram. So intuitive eating RD. And your book's available on all the major online resources. Yes. You know what? Our paperback is coming out in just a couple weeks. So it's got a new cover, same book, less expensive. So hope everybody will take the opportunity and grab a paperback copy. Is this book, just briefly, is it geared more towards families or professionals or both? It's for everyone. So parents, caregivers, even people who don't have kids, I've gotten a lot of feedback that like just adults take a lot out of this book, take a lot away from it because one of our whole sections is on exploring and repairing your own history and relationship with food as an adult. So it's for everyone really. Yeah, I remember in one of our consult groups, Sumner, that there was a dietitian who said they sometimes will give your book to adults as a place to start. I was just going to say, we sort of like, you know, can reparent ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. If we're struggling with that, if adults struggling with their relationship with food, it can view it as a you know, a fresh start and reparenting yourself for Reparenting. We're going to make sure to put that in your book and your paperback in the show notes as well. Thank you for joining us today, Sumner Brooks. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for all your good work. 
Thank you for listening. And if you want to connect with me for all things eating disorders and disordered eating from an RD, registered dietitian perspective, there are three ways to do that. One is my membership. And actually, two of those ways are my membership. There's a tier one and a tier two. But it's, the membership is for anyone, not only professionals, anyone who wants to join the conversation about medical, nutrition, therapy perspectives floating through my brain, things that I've learned through the podcast, things that I've learned in my three plus decades of work with all ages. And the membership has monthly content with the two tiers. Tier one is the content and a text community where we can share ideas. And tier two is once per month with a live coffee talk where you can just pop in and say hi, or you can be a fly on the wall and add, um, just listen to some ideas related to that month's theme. And then finally, for professionals, I offer small consult groups that run from January to June and July to December, usually therapists and RDs, but I would love to have a medical provider. And I offer individual consultation. Information on all this is in the show notes.